Two friends taking pictures of the rising full moon on a summer night. Two teenage kids doing what teenage kids do. When a stranger with a gun and a death wish changed everything. It was violent, it was senseless, and I will never understand it, I will never accept it. I'm Amy Donaldson, and unfortunately, we're all too familiar with stories about how violence shatters lives. But what we rarely see is how they are rebuilt. In a new podcast, The Letter, we relive tragedy, but only so we can hear the rest of the story. The struggle to reclaim lives, the realities of grief, and the possibilities of forgiveness. I believe in miracles. Sometimes I thought, there are no miracles. Yeah, there are, and this is a big one. Follow The Letter at theletterpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Inside Sources. Inside Sources. Inside Sources. Where KSL offers Utah deeper insights on the news. Host Boyd Matheson divides rage from reason and elevates the conversation on issues crucial to our community. On KSL News Radio 102.7 FM and 1160 AM. Well, we're wrapping up graduation season with thousands of high schoolers about to go off to college for the fall. But is it time to change how higher learning is done and give students and professors more options? Let's begin. Think you know the news of the day? Think again. Well, after the pandemic, it became clear that K-12 students needed to attend school in person. Big impact there. But could college students actually benefit from more virtual learning and just different models? Really pleased to have joining us back on the program once again, Sam Abrams is a professor of, politi- of politics excuse me, at Sarah Lawrence College and a non-resident senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. And Professor Abrams, thanks for joining us again. Thank you so much for having me. Glad to be here. Uh, so let's dive into this. Uh, there, there's uh, Obviously, there's a lot of chatter going on around the cost uh, of higher education and uh, looking at student loan forgiveness and all of those kinds of things. But I, I think before we even get to any of that, we have to go where you've been going. You had a great piece in the dispatch talking about hybrid learning and models uh, that could be beneficial to those in higher education. Tell us about it. Absolutely. So in-person education is a wonderful thing, but it's not something that is as accessible for all Americans as we like to think. You know, it turns out that well over 50 percent of folks who attend college now are not the types of students who come in and live on campus in dormitories for four years. They don't have 24-7 live learn environments. They're actually commuter students. These folks may be older. They may be what we call non-traditional. They have families, jobs, and so on. So uh, this isn't to say that living on some leafy campus and and, and having dining halls and uh, social lives around the clock is is wrong or anything like that. But when we think about cost and we think about what do students need and we think about uh, making classes accessible and easy, uh, I'm suggesting that we really think about a hybrid approach. That is, some stuff should be in person, but a lot of stuff and a lot of education can occur virtually and remotely. And uh, students seem to like that based on uh, a lot of survey data we've been collecting. Yeah, and let's let's dive into those numbers just a little bit in terms of how that actually impacts. And uh, again, kind of comparing both in terms of what they're, they're getting out of that in-person learning versus a, a hybrid model with, uh, you know, a, a host of different options available there, to, again, to mostly non-traditional students anyway. What do the numbers tell us in terms of the most important thing that we often miss in this higher education discussion, and that is outcomes? Yeah, and what, one of the things that is really remarkable in the data is that 
students participate more, believe it or not, in virtual formats. Now, a lot of folks would say that's ridiculous. You know, you can't have good conversations. Uh, people, you know, uh, you know, disappear. They put those little black squares up. That's not necessarily true. Uh, you know, some faculty would like to complain about that. Some students would like to complain about that. I've taught classes virtually now for over two years, unexpectedly, of course, and no one puts up a square. You know, we have to, as faculty, look to teach in this new medium, really make it engaging. And what the numbers have found is that as opposed to having mob-like behavior where some students keep quiet, they're silenced, whether they're conservative or liberal, whether they're uh, wealthy or, or a little less uh, comfortable, more students engage and more students talk and feel comfortable talking, which is the goal of college, last time I checked, in these formats. So instead of people saying, oh, the students just ignore it, no. We need to make sure we make this a dynamic, engaging, desirable experience and have that alongside big lecture halls, have that alongside small seminars and try to come up with this sort of mixed method approach. Before we just say everything has to be in person, take a look at uh, you know, what happens at the University of Utah or University of California classrooms. They don't have room in lecture halls. People are bumped all the time. There's no engagement. Just because you're in the same room with each other doesn't mean you're getting a whole lot out of it. So my proposal is simply this. Let's be more creative. Let's harness the upsides of some of these tools and use them alongside some of the in-person education. I think it would lower costs and uh, outcomes would actually be much better. Yeah, and I think that's uh, that's the whole key. We've got to be driving towards those outcomes. And one of the interesting things to me is that, uh, of course, we're still functioning on this model uh, that goes back centuries where you're, you actually had to have the books, the teacher, and the students all in the same place in order for any kind of learning to, to take place. We don't need that. Um, so, so now I think we have to start looking at some of those structures, both in terms of the universities themselves, uh, but then how do we deal with some of the things like the accreditation model, uh, that may prevent some of these universities from doing what you're suggesting and getting a little more creative with the model? Uh, the accreditors just have to work with that. I mean, government and accreditation agencies, and in this case, they're actually usually nonprofit agencies. They're not even technically government agencies, uh, need to, I would say, roll with the, you know, roll with the time. <laughs> and move a little bit more quickly and recognize that for this industry to thrive, I mean, the costs of attending a traditional four-year private school are astronomical. It's out of reach for so many people. Instead of saying, oh, let's give more tuition aid, how about we just make it more affordable across the board? This is one way to do that. It scales nicely. People have very good outcomes. And, uh, you know, in, in the lead into this, you'd even mentioned, uh, you know, some of the benefits of in-person learning for folks in high school and lower. Um, that's certainly true. But think about groups or, 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 or industries or rather uh, groups like the Khan Academy and some of these others. Mm -hmm. um, they're all virtual. And look what they've been able to do to supplement high school. This, this mode works. We need to be open to it. And the savings are going to be there, too. Yeah. Um, accreditors really need to just catch up. Yeah, absolutely. And then from a teacher standpoint, how uh, how does having that option uh, in terms of virtual classes, what uh, what kind of doors does that open? How does that change the dynamic? Oh, it, 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 it could be so wonderful and so useful for so many people. Um, so consider Utah again uh, or, or any of the, the wonderful mountain region states, right? Um, you know, there are a lot of policymakers in D.C. who cannot fly back and forth, right? But there's so many people in D.C. who could offer a great policy course to students who are anchored in, in, in the Rocky region. Why not? Why not take advantage of that? The speakers, the availability of talent, the ability to bring new ideas and get real viewpoint diversity in the classroom could be very, very high here. 
Uh, and again, could lower teaching costs. If you don't have to worry about paying faculty, say where I am, uh, a New York sort of wage, uh, and instead the folks are in a more cost-effective uh, place to, li you know, to live, uh, you know, again, costs go down over and over and over again. Uh, and it just requires sort of a very radical rethink here, uh, which again, should improve learning outcomes and should enable students based on the data to feel more comfortable talking in class. Now, this is not an, uh, an, uh, an absolute solution. You know, certain things like pre-med labs need to be in person. Certain seminars are better still in person. But if you take a look at an average school course catalog, there's still significant numbers of courses, large lecture halls, large introductory courses, things like history, uh, things like uh, lit. Uh, some of them are, you know, they're very passive anyway. Why not do them virtually? Yeah, absolutely. Great insight and uh, a, a great swing at where we need to go in terms of all of this outcomes, costs, and flexibility in terms of the learning model uh, for what students of today actually need. And really, we have to create a society uh, and a workforce that is continuously learning. Uh, forever learning is, is going to be the name of the game as we try to keep exactly. up. Exactly. Absolutely. Fantastic. Sam Abrams is the uh, professor of politics at St. Uh, excuse me, Professor <laughs> Sarah Lawrence College. <laughs> Little tug twisted today. <laughs> Non-resident senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. Uh, professor Abrams, always appreciate your perspective uh, and insight on this, and uh, we'll have you back again real soon. Uh, so a lot of important things there from Professor Abrams, and uh, I think the model is what has to shift. There's a great piece uh, by Senator Ben Sass out today in the Atlantic uh, talking about how we do some of this because it is going to require not just nibbling at the edges, not just incremental improvement. Uh, we've got to have some, some seismic shifts and it's going to require universities and colleges, the accreditation, the government, uh, all those involved are going to have to rethink what it is, what education looks like and what we actually need it to be for students uh, and for our communities in the future. Lots to think about when it comes to education. Think again with Lloyd Matheson on KSL News Radio. A gun in the face. Then all of a sudden, they all kind of lined up. They pointed their guns at me. And this is the point where I thought, I'm going to die today. Started two years of horror for an American in Venezuela. They said, You need to give us your phone and get ready because you're coming with us. I'm Becky Bruce, and I spent a year researching and piecing together Josh and Tammy Holt's story about their ordeal in a notorious prison. That's when everything started to turn bad. We had another pound on the door. Boom, boom, boom. And there was the police once again. You can binge all of the episodes of Hope in Darkness on kslpodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts.